Good morning, Freshwater. It's good to be here with you, and it's a truly an honor to get to open up God's Word with you and see what He has for us. Confident He'll speak to us through it. Um, before I jump into the message um, on the Acts movement, we're in week number 10 already, only two weeks to go after this one. Uh, but before I jump into that, uh, as an elder, I wanted to you know, represent the elder board and just have an update for you, the family here, as far as the, the pastoral search goes. So really the theme is, is over the past month here, we've been continuing to really work closely with the district, the superintendent, and some other folks there in the, in the office of the Christian Missionary Alliance to just get alignment on how this process starts and to make sure that we're ready to, to dive into it. Um, one, one thing we can tell you is that we, have, we are going to appoint a search committee to join with the elders in the search process. So we don't have the exact details of what that committee's responsibilities will be, but we know that it's going to be there to share the burden with the elders. I think as elders, we realize that there's ongoing ministry here that we want to be fruitful and powerful while the search is going on. So we want to be able to focus on that and, and partner with the search committee um, with the, the burden of the search. So we said at the annual meeting on February 27th that we are targeting the end of March for starting the search. Uh, and that is still the case. Um, that's what we're driving towards, but we're not driving toward it blindly or, blindly or like, you know, that has to be the date. So we, we expect God to continue to lead us. And, and as we have updates, we'll be sure to let you know from up here uh, what's going on. Uh, ask you to continue to pray for, for the search and for the church here. That God's favor would be on us in this time, and uh, as always, if you have questions or you know, just you, you want to be heard, that's what the elders are here for. We're, we we'd love to hear your questions and hear from you before services, after services, email stuff like that. So um, more to come. So let's jump into the the message here, and um, I guess to start, I want to see if 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 this resonates with with you too on this Acts Movement series that we're in. Um, I'm, I've been really excited just to hear these messages and the amazing stuff that happens in the book of Acts. But I guess if you're like me, you feel a little bit unsettled and uncomfortable. Like, why is that experience and why are those things happened? Why are they not more prevalent in my life and in my church? And I don't say that like a, like a downer, like, because I, I know that, that God has at many times worked in my life where I know it was him, and I knew he was moving in me and in people around me, and it's awesome when that happens. And, and I don't know everything that's going on here at Freshwater, but I, I know with confidence that God is moving right now and all over the place, through our ministries, through, through, through groups and people. So I don't say that like, Nothing's happened. When, when, I, when I look at Acts and see how the Holy Spirit emboldens people to speak right in the midst of deadly opposition for Jesus, and when the people pray earnestly and God just answers in a dramatic fashion, and when salvation, new birth, is like the daily norm, and I mean daily, and cultural differences and divisions are being like just ripped down by God, like, and I. Again, it's not like I'm unhappy, but I want more of that. And how do we get more of that? that that's how I've been like, you know, going, you know, processing this, this act series so far. 
And as we think about the church today in America, I think it's facing more difficulty than it ever has. Quite possibly, there's, there's criticism from within the church and outside of it, and probably some of it's warranted. And there's cultural and political forces that are beating against it on every side. And we are seeing on a regular basis, way more churches are closing in America than new ones are opening. And we have a growing number of people, according to like you know, George Barna and other surveys, as we, as we survey Christendom, there's a growing number of people that are essentially saying, I love Jesus, I'm with him, but I'm out on the church. They're abandoning the church. And I, you know, we look at factors like that, and I, I think it's fitting that today, we go back to our roots, and not back to our Christian Missionary Alliance roots like, you know, A.B. Simpson, late 19th century, but to go back to our real roots in the book of Acts and see, take a look, a fresh look at what the church is and some of the formative traits that, like, birthed that church and forged it so that it could be powerful and effective in its ministry. So that's what we're going after today, and uh, let's jump in. So I'm going to start actually outside of Acts in um, Matthew chapter 16, because while the church was born in Acts, and you can think back to Acts chapter 2 where the tongues of fire came down, people spoke in tongues, and 3,000 people were saved, bang, that day, because God worked and the church was born, and they began like their lives changed on the spot. They were, they were sharing and speaking and praying and giving in ways they never had before. So the church was born then, but the church was, I guess I'd say, announced well before that by Jesus himself. And we see this in Matthew 16. So before this passage we're looking at here, Jesus has asked his disciples, his closest followers, who do you say that I am? Or I'm sorry, who do people say that I am? And the disciples were like, well, you know, some people say you're Elijah, come back to life, maybe Jeremiah, maybe even John the Baptist, like you're a teacher, you're a prophet. And then you see in verse 15, Jesus sort of says that, no, that's nice, but then he narrows the focus. And it says in verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, always the first to jump in, replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So that last verse there, I want to focus in on that. I am going to tap dance right past the opening part of that verse that's about Peter and the rock, and that's a centuries-old debate. You can ask Norm or Sean on that maybe, and they can help you figure it out. But I want to turn your attention to the later part of the verse. And can you imagine the fire in Jesus' eyes? and the determination and the gravity in his voice when he says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That word church there that Jesus used, first time it's in the Bible, uh, is the word, I might pronounce it right, ekklesia. It's a compound word in Greek that basically means a called out assembly, a set apart group, a sanctified gang. Like it's, it's this group of people that Jesus has called out to do what Peter did, to say Jesus is the Christ, Messiah, Holy One, Anointed One, 
the only one who can save. And he's God. He's the son of the living God. He's, he's, he's saying he is God himself. That's, that's the announcement of the church, this called out assembly. Please note that it's a singular word, church. Singular, a single called out group that's gonna say that to the world around them that Jesus is the Christ. We can go on and see more about this definition of the church in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter one, verse 15, the he here is Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Amen. Another word we get for the church here is this term, the body. And Jesus is the head of that body. And that's a simple analogy, but man, is it potent. If we think of Jesus being the head of the church, the head of this called out group, and he wants to work in them as if he is the head of that body. If we think about that, like when my head tells my arm to move, it just happens, right? Like my arm is moving right now, my brain is telling it to do that while I'm still talking to you and hopefully making a little bit of sense. That's the picture that Jesus has for us, that he wants to work through the body in a way that is um, impulsive, natural, decisive for his glory. That's what the church is. It's, it's not a material thing as in buildings. It's a physical thing as in people. People called out, called together by Christ. And he wants to move in them in that way. Looking at Ephesians chapter four, we, we just, I, I think what I'm getting at is just you know, some terminology here. Where I'm talking about the, the big C church, the capital C church that is that one true church of God. In Ephesians chapter four and verse four, it says, and I'll just, I'll just hammer on the ones here, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. I'll go to verse six. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in and all in all. One church. That's, that's the identity that Jesus had in mind. One body. And he is the head and he's moving through it in powerful ways that we almost can't explain like the head moves through the body. So we, the little C church then, and I would call like, you know, Freshwater Community Church, even though probably our name for legal purposes is a capital C, but we are the little C church. And what that is, is it, it's, a, it's a part, a subset, a portion of that one assembly of God called out for Christ to say that he's Lord. We can see this in Acts chapter nine. Acts chapter nine, verse 31 says, so the church same exact word, by the way. So the ecclesia, the called out group throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace 
and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. You see, these, these churches, and if you, you know, if you have your brochure or your booklet handy, I'll be referring to it several times, and, and you can see these churches here that are geographically separate, you know, fairly close together, but Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, all a good ways apart. These are separate entities, but they have the one identity. They are the church. You could look in several places in the Bible. Every, every place in the Bible you see church, it's that same term, ecclesia. Maybe you've read through Revelation and Jesus through inspires John to write letters to the churches, the little sea churches in Pergamum and Thyatira and Laodicea and Philadelphia and probably a few that I'm forgetting. Same word, same identity. We have one identity as belonging to the big C church, that one called out group. There's some implications to this that we need to stop and think about for a minute. So if that's true, that we have one identity, then, then we need to think about church growth correctly. Little C church growth can happen and not actually be big C church growth. You know, and I guess I'm speaking of a, a little C church that is, that is focused on buildings and bodies and budgets and programs, but people aren't actually getting saved. Big C church growth, the real called out assembly is growing. That's what the little C churches need to go for. And if they lose that identity, they're in trouble. And they're at risk of falling out of God's favor if they lose that mission, if they lose that identity. This also tells us that little C churches are not competitors. They are the church, right? Um, actually, I think on this point, I've got a video to show, and this is, maybe you've seen it, it's a, of some Ukrainian believers in the days before uh, the war in Ukraine. So, let me play that now. So there's the, the church, the little C church in Ukraine. And I, uh, I, I think they're singing something to the effect of let our prayers flow. They're in the middle of Kiev days before, at most, the war began. So if we're, if we're going to claim this identity, then if those folks are followers of Christ, then we are in the most literal sense possible one with them. And it doesn't matter how many oceans or miles or differences or the disaster that they're facing doesn't change that they are one with us. Uh, you might know Scott Sobey. He's a missionary, now lives in Ukraine, um, married there to Ukrainian women. They are staying there, ministering to believers, sharing the good news in a literal war zone. We are one with him in every way possible one with him. And if that's true of the believers in Ukraine, it has to be at least as true of the little seed churches that surround this town that we live in. Those churches that, that proclaim Christ, denominations aside, 
We're one with them. Imposing thoughts. Last implication would be on a, on a more personal level is that we don't really go to church. We, we are church. And I, I get that terminology wrong as much as anybody, I'm sure. But like, we have to think of a verse like 1 Corinthians 12, 27 that says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We are the church. And if you believe in Christ, then you can't, you can't escape that identity. It's a huge part of your identity as a believer in Jesus. So let's jump into Acts now. And we're going to look at five uh, traits, I guess I'd call them, that define that early church. And I think they're things that are still needed and still in reach for us today. I'll list them out there for you. So the, er the early church spoke the name of Jesus boldly, gave sacrificially, prayed earnestly, devoured doctrine, and shared life authentically. So let's dig into those. The first, the first point there on spoke the name of Jesus boldly, I'm gonna lightly touch on that because it's already been covered pretty well and I think there's a little more to come in our series. But just to say, man, we've seen that. The people prayed in Acts 4.29, I can't remember which week that, what, that, that passage was mentioned, the people prayed for boldness and God answered by physically shaking the building that they were praying in and then gave them the boldness to speak. And, and we've seen Stephen the martyr and Philip the evangelist with the Ethiopian and the people that were scattered, they preached the word wherever they went. And Peter with Cornelius, like Paul Honeycutt talked about. And last week, Josh talked about the believers in Antioch saying, you know what, I think this gospel is for everyone, right? Let's go to, let's go to the Greeks too. They just, they couldn't stop speaking about Jesus, and that was the program. The program was nothing more and nothing less than Christ, that he is, he's the Christ. He's the son of the living God, and, and you need to know him. That was it. That was their message. So we've seen that trait all over Acts. If you go to Acts 11, the end of Acts 11, um, Josh did cover this passage a little bit, but I'm just going to dive into a couple verses right at the end of the chapter there. Acts 11, 27 to 30. And we'll, we'll see about this sacrificial sharing. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and one of them named, named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So you can orient yourself. Uh, you know, once again, it's so cool to see like we, we can orient to history and see on our missional, the start of the missional timeline here that there was a, an emperor named Claudius and there is recorded outside of the Bible famines that happened in this area in 45 AD, 46 AD. Some people think that somebody even talk about 47 AD here in this particular passage. But a famine was predicted by the Spirit through Agabus, and that famine happened, and it started in Judea. So you can see in your map there, if you have it, like the, the profile area of, of Judea is close to Jerusalem, where the church was born. The believers here in Antioch are a good bit north, you know, in you know, the northern part of Syria there, so like straight up from, straight north from the Palestine area. Um, they hear this prophecy of a famine 
across the whole world. Now that, that doesn't really mean the, the whole globe, but it means the world that they knew of, the place their ships were going to and coming back from. There was gonna be a famine all over that. That was the prophecy of this, from the Holy Spirit. So we have to recognize here that these believers in Antioch likely have a famine coming their way sometime soon. And yet here they are giving in faith, giving almost, you know, we might say from a human point of view, like not very judiciously. Like save back because the famine's coming your way too. But they recognize the immediate need. They recognize that those believers in Judea were part of the church too. And in an act of oneness with them and faith in God, they gave sacrificially in the midst of a very uncertain future for, for their own selves that define the early church. As we continue on in Acts, we'll, we'll jump into chapter 12 here and see how they prayed earnestly. So I'll pick it up at Acts 12.1. About that time, Herod the king, and that's, um, you might remember Herod from the Christmas account. This is Herod Agrippa that, you know, the king in, you know, the gospel accounts. This is his grandson. Um, he's one of the uh, the villains that are mentioned in the individual's part of your brochure. And uh, we don't have time to cover it today, but if you read on Acts chapter 12, you can see that he fails spectacularly uh, to hinder the gospel and at uh, grave cost to himself. But Herod the king, in verse 1, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, and intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, here we go, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church, by the called out assembly that was there in Jerusalem. I can only, don't hold me to this, I'm just imagining, but I think there's a good chance that they prayed for James too. He was put to the sword. James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, one of the sons of thunder, one of the most influential people in the early church, is gone because, of his, because he stood up for Jesus. But still, with that as the backdrop, we see the church here still praying earnestly against all hope, fully rely on God, praying earnestly. I'm going to skim over like the next 11 or so verses just to point out some key points, but, but basically we, we've got Peter at the same time this prayer is happening on the night before he's being, going to be brought out. Now that's a nice way of saying to be put to death. It, that's what Herod has in mind when he brings him out. It says there in verse 6. So you've got Peter in prison sleeping. Now, that's a whole other sermon someone can do on the peace and presence of God to be sleeping before the night of your, you know, right before your execution. But anyway, he's sleeping, basically gets whacked in the side by an angel and says, hey, get up, Peter, get up. Peter gets up. He, he thinks he's sleepwalking or some, in some sort of trance. He gets up. The shackles fall off. The angel, you know, leads him out. This huge iron gate opens of its own accord. God opens it. And Peter winds up basically in the middle of Jerusalem, somewhere downtown, comes to himself and says, I'm free. Like, God just freed me. 
From there, I'm about, I'm about to verse 12 now, he goes to, he goes to Mary's house where it um, just so happens, but it didn't just so happen, right? The prayer meeting is going on. The prayer meeting is going on. The earnest prayer is being offered up. Peter's knocking on the door. Um, sweet little Rhoda goes to answer the door and says, hey, Peter's here. Goes back and like, you know, interrupts the prayer meeting and says, like, Peter's here. Like, God answered her prayer. And, and what do they do? They say, well, you know what? No, we got to keep praying. It's, it just must be his angel or something. Like, it, it can be Peter. Like, we're, we're still busy praying here. Don't miss the humor here, by the way. Can you imagine this, uh, this combination of joy, wonder, praise, belly laughter that's going on when they finally listen to Rhoda and open the door and there's Peter and answer their prayers. Um, we've got verses like James 5.16 that says to us, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective as it is working. Here it is. The early church was devoted to prayer even in the midst of terrible opposition and unspeakable loss. They kept praying. They couldn't be stopped from praying. Don't miss the fact either that it was a child that had the simple faith to say, you know what? I think God answered our prayer. Peter's here. It took a child's eyes to see that. This church thing is not defined by ages or genders or cultures. It's a one called out group of people who belong to Jesus. One other thing we can see about the church is they, they, they ate doctrine up. They devoured the teaching of truth about who God was and how they could know him and how they could please him. Um, Acts chapter 20, let's jump over there and see that. So as we travel here, as we, as we go into this part, uh, Paul is basically making his way towards Jerusalem. You know, some of the, like Acts, you know, 16, 17, 18, Paul is, he's in places like Athens, Ephesus. You can see those on your map in the sort of the southeastern part of Achaia. He, he sailed over to Ephesus, the western part of the Asia province. And now he's basically sailing right through the heart of the Mediterranean Sea, going past Cyprus, and on his way to um, the city of Tyre. I'm sorry, the city of Troas here. Actually, I'm sorry, I got a little ahead of myself. So, so this Acts 20, verse 7 account that we're reading is, is in the city of Troas, which if you can find um, Philippi there at the, like, the northernmost tip of the, the uh, Mediterranean Sea in the, in the province of Thrace, I think it's pronounced, uh, Troas is close to that, probably a little bit east, um, somewhere between like Philippi and Smyrna. So here, in the way this, this, this journey worked for Paul is he would, he would sail for a while with, with, obviously Luke's there because he's recording it under the inspiration of God. He's got, he's got a group that's traveling with him. And, and whenever the ship needs to dock to unload cargo, get more cargo, drop off passengers, pick up passengers, like they stop there and they go find the believers that had been scattered to that part of, of the Middle East. So here they, they get off the, in verse in verse 7, they're in Troas, and it says in verse 7 of Acts 20, on the first day of the week, we were gathered together to break bread. Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until about midnight. 
There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. I'm not going till midnight, by the way, just, just so you know. Um, and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and, and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took away the youth alive and were not a little bit comforted. Wow. So Paul is teaching. He's teaching and teaching. By the way, again, don't miss the humor. Do you, do you think like Eutychus had a little bit of a, you know, healthy ribbing going on? Like, hey, before we talk, I want to make sure Eutychus is on the ground level or is not, you know, hasn't taken his sleeping pills. Like, we got to make sure Eutychus is okay. Ha, ha, ha. Like, you know, these stories that the church had to share and celebrate, like, Man, these were stories that they remembered for the rest of their lives. It, 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 it formed them, it forged them. And here you see this church that can't get enough of doctrine. I didn't touch on it, but like you can see in Acts 12, what did the believers that were praying think? They thought, well, that must be Peter's angel. So doctrinally, that's a little iffy. Um, but they wanted to keep learning. They, they, they didn't have it all together. But whenever the word was being taught, they couldn't get enough. And I just can't believe that they, that they, they spoke till midnight. They heard from Paul till midnight. I wonder if angels came up like, hey, we've been hearing about the angels. Can we talk about angels? Can we get that right? Can we hear more about the truth about Christ? Like, how, how do we live for him? So Paul's talking in this vein, like, until midnight. But the thing that amazes me is that after Eutychus falls down, looks like he's dead, Paul says he's alive because God saved him. What do they do? They go right back to doctrine until daybreak. Honestly, I would have been like, you know, like, we just saw what happened to Eutychus. It might be time to put a wrap on this thing. They couldn't get enough of doctrine. They just couldn't get enough. And it wasn't like a, it wasn't debate fodder or head knowledge for head knowledge's sake. Like, they wanted to know how to worship in truth and how to speak about God to others in truth. And they, they wanted that truth to, to literally impact the details of their life. So they were living in a way that's pleasing to God. I mean, doctrine was not boring to this early church. It's like they, they wanted to keep learning as they went. Over in Acts 21, we can see this authentic sharing. So as we, as we follow the journey, you know, we're going from Again, somewhere, you know, Troas around between Philippi and Smyrna. Now we're heading through, you know, Mediterranean Sea over past Cyprus to um, a city called Tyre. And if you can see Damascus there, like sort of north of Palestine in that little detail rectangle, Tyre is right on the coast, right on the ocean there, or the Mediterranean Sea, I should say. And when they landed there, um, I'll pick it up in Acts 20, 1, verse 4. It says, Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. 
And then we went on board the ship and returned home. Boy, can you, can you see that prayer meeting? You know, ocean breeze, waves lapping on the shore, and they're there all together. And don't miss again that the children are there. The children are praying. The wives are praying. The husbands are praying. And this, this close fellowship of seven days of close life-on-life -life fellowship with Paul, it's got some disagreement sprinkled into it, right? This church is saying, Paul, we believe the Spirit is telling us to not keep going toward Jerusalem. Paul is saying, I believe the Spirit is telling me to keep going to Jerusalem. They're in the midst of this disagreement, but that's not stopping them from seeking God together, from fellowshipping, from praying. Um, it's not always easy or agreeable, this authentic life-sharing thing that we're talking about here, but that early church embraced it. So Paul leaves the, the, the beachside prayer service, and, and now he's sailing on to Caesarea, which now he's getting really close to Jerusalem. Caesarea is in that, is in that you know, detailed profile, sort of the northern part of the Judea-Samaria region. And we see Agabus again in verse 10. While we were staying for many days, uh, by the way, they're staying at Philip's house. You remember Philip from the Ethiopian and, and how God used him to, you know, to speak the word powerfully. While we were staying there for many days, a prophet named Agabus, same guy, came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt, Paul, and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are, we, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Again, we see more of this tension of like, these people are trying to understand God's will and it's not, everyone's not lined up. They're earnestly seeking the spirit. By the way, Agabus was right. Exactly what Agabus said did happen to Paul. But ultimately, where they land is God's will, we want it to be done. And Paul, if that's, the belief, if that's what you truly believe, we release you to that. And we pray for you and we love you. you know, this authentic life sharing, like there was, we've already seen some of like the debates that went on. Like it wasn't always easy or clean or, you know, sort of straight laced, I guess. Like it was rough as these lives sort of rubbed against each other, but they, they came out praying. They came out hugging. They wept for each other. They, their hearts broke for each other because they wanted God's best. That's what that church was like. And I wonder, if we close, you know, sometimes I wonder if, if as a church, and I say, I'm talking about the big C church, not just Freshwater, but I wonder if we've put an imbalanced focus on the personal relationship with Christ. You know, we tell kids, like, you need to believe in Jesus, and Jesus becomes your personal Lord and Savior. And you have a personal relationship with God where he speaks to you. And, and that is 100% right, 100% right. But we, we see all throughout the book of Acts, like we've seen this morning, time and again, it's, it's to a group of people that God is speaking and dramatically answering prayers and, and bringing decisions and, and making things happen. It's through the groups. Now, individuals, too. 
like, uh, there go the notes, it's okay. Um, individuals too, like, I mean, Paul on the road to Damascus and Peter with Cornelius and, and Philip with the Ethiopian, like, yeah, it's individual too, but I didn't count it out, but I would say a little more than half the time in Acts, when God does something and when God intervenes and when decisions get made and when people get saved, it's the group. It's the ecclesia. It's the call-out assembly where that is happening. And I wonder if that's a pattern for us today. If it was more than half, you know, if, if half of what the people were experiencing happened in the context of church, then maybe that's how it still is today. And if we're, like, satisfied with just a relationship with Jesus and the personal reality of that, we might be missing out on a little more than half of what God wants for us and the fulfillment and the joy that God wants to bring to us. It's in the group. I think if the believers in Acts, if, like, they heard someone say, like, I'm all in for Jesus but out in the church, they might have looked at that person like they had three heads or something. Like, what do you mean? Are you serious? Like, I mean, man... Boy, when we get together, like, we just have a great time, and we share memories, and we laugh, and then we pray, and God speaks, and we're emboldened to go out on our own and yet together to tell people about Jesus. Like, how could you possibly, like, be out on that? Like, that's where it is. That's where it's at. Like, that, that was the attitude of that church, and I, I wonder if we're called today to, to put some fresh eyes on the church, so, some fresh eyes that that's who we are. You know, when Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against it, we see that in Acts, and that still holds today. Like, you know, God has this, this church in mind, and, and his heart beats for a church that's not stoppable, literally, unstoppable. Cultural barriers get, get set aside, divisions get solved, disagreements are, set, are, 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 are handled, and they speak and they pray, and they, they, they get the doctrine right, and they, they keep going, telling the world around them that Jesus is the Christ. He's God. I wonder if, that, if that's the kind of eyes that we need to look back on the church and think about that way. Can I call you folks to do something a little risky? To hold the church in high regard. To esteem the church highly. I say that as someone who has endured the greatest hurts in my life has been in church, little c churches. And maybe you're in that boat too, that that feels pretty risky to hold the church in high regard. But if we look back at to, to its identity and what it's meant to be, I think we can do that. And with that high regard, would you invest what I invest in the church the best of my time, the best of my energy, my resources to be a part of the body that more and more people will know that Jesus is the Christ. There might be one of those formative traits, whether it's your hunger for doctrine, the, the heat of your prayers, how much of me, are you speaking the name of Jesus, what's your, what's your giving, what, what's, your, what's your sacrificial giving like, you know, What's the authenticity and openness to fellowship? Like, I mean, God might be asking you to lean into one or two of those, that you can be a fuller part of the church. So in closing, I want to uh, spend some time in congregational prayer. You can stay right where you are, and you can pray silently. But if it's true, and it is, that there is one church, 
one call-out assembly, then we're going to pray for the church this morning. Not just Freshwater, but, but for the church. So a couple prompts. First of all, we saw the video. Can we pray for the believers in Ukraine, that they would be light? Pray for, for protection for Scott Sobey and anyone else who is named the name of Jesus, that they would be able to be effective right where they are in the midst of that terrible disaster. We'll start with that. Then I'll prompt you one to sort of change your prayer focus to um, a few churches right around us here in Wadsworth that are part of the capital C church, just like us. I emailed these churches about a week ago and said, hey, if we at Freshwater, I told them we're gonna be praying for them this Sunday. If there's one thing that we could pray for you this Sunday, what would it be? Uh, up on the screen is their answer to what we could be praying for. And it's pretty cool. They said, hey, what can we pray for you, by the way? Like it was, it was a pretty cool, it was just an email moment, but it was still pretty cool to see how those churches responded. So let's do that. Let's start by, by lifting up the Ukrainian believers. And then I'll prompt you to, uh, to pick one or two as God leads you, uh, one of these churches in Wadsworth, and then I'll close this overall.